This episode was brought to you by Nail It and Scale It, the world's leading fast growth program for business. Ladies and gentlemen, it's my absolute pleasure to welcome to Unstoppable today, Holly McKay. Now, as I just mentioned to Holly, I've been following Holly for for quite some time uh, with the work that she's done. She's a foreign policy expert and war crimes investigator. She has worked on the front lines of several major war zones and covered humanitarian and diplomatic crises in both Iraq, Afghanistan, Pakistan, Syria, Iran, Turkey, Yemen, Saudi Arabia, Burma, Russia, Africa, Latin America, and other areas as well. She's also reported as a war journalist for Fox News Digital for over 14 years and has been and some of these being exclusive and detailed interviews with numerous captured terrorists, as well as high-ranking government, military, and intelligence officials from all sides. She's also conducted interviews with survivors of torture, sex slavery, and forced child jihadist training and refugees. Holly McKay, welcome to Unstoppable. Thank you for having me. It's an absolute pleasure. Now, I'm going to start with a bit of a, a mind bender. Now, I don't know much about you, but I do get to see your Facebook profile. And so I know you're into <laughs> everything from horses, motorbikes, guns, um, reporting. Uh, but you seem like you would be a really interesting person to have a chat with at a dinner party. And so I ask all my guests these questions. Let's say you go to a dinner party. Uh, it can be anywhere in the world that you like. And there's about eight other people there who you don't know. Everyone walks in. They sit down at the dinner table. Everything goes silent. And everyone, all of a sudden, the attention just turns to you. And someone pops up and says, so what is it that you do, Holly? How the fuck do you answer that question? Yeah, and I guess that really depends on the crowd. Um, but just generally these days, I say I'm a writer. That's about it. And if they want to know more, then we go into it a little bit more. But um, I guess maybe that's the Aussie in me is it's I let people figure it out a little bit. I'm, I, you know, that's probably one of the hardest things to adjust to when you come to America. And I've been here a long time is that we aren't the best self-promoters. <laughs> so, yeah. And, and for someone, and this is what I find interesting about you, Holly, um, uh, for someone who writes for a living, you don't say a lot. Um, but when you do say something, in most cases, it's very thoughtful. And because I've not just, you know, read and followed mm. you on Facebook, I've also read um, many of your articles that you've posted. And when you do speak, you are very thoughtful in the work that you, in the words that you put together. But I guess my curiosity really lies in where this all began because I, I know you are Aussie born and bred. I know from mm -hmm. what I've seen, you were at one stage uh, either a prima ballerina in training or a ballerina in training. Where does your story begin, Holly? So, yeah, I was born in, uh, in North Queensland. Both my parents are from a small town uh, just outside of there. So most of my childhood was spent at a little place called Gordonvale, just outside of Cairns. So it was a it was a gorgeous upbringing, you know, in the rainforest and um, just very small town sort of environment. Uh, my dad was in the mines. So we moved around a little bit and I ended up in Hunter Valley and again, small town. So and I got quite serious about my ballet at a young age and I loved to create, always loved to write. And so I went away to a boarding school in Sydney. Um, to sort of be able to kind of further that as well as doing my schooling and ended up breaking my ankle when I was 18. So just after my HSC. And so that kind of um, squashed a lot of plans that I'd had to sort of keep going overseas and studying. I Had you had plans at this point to be a ballerina, like professional? Yeah, 
I didn't know if it would be a strict ballet career or I'd go into right. something that was a little bit more creative in that space. Yeah, but right. I, I really love to write about, you know, what we called uh, dance appreciation. So I love to be able to kind of go and critique. And I studied a lot of contemporary. And it just, you know, it really gave me this sort of education about the world that I didn't necessarily have, you know, in my childhood. So it was the way that I really learned about, you know, the civil rights movement in America was through these Alvin Ailey uh, explorations, or I learned about Yuri Killian, who was this, you know, famous European choreographer. And so it was just this kind of um, baptism by fire into these worlds. And I really, dancing was the thing that, that taught me all those things that I think really fostered a curiosity that I had about people in places that just seemed so far away. And so I, I also found myself studying Latin dancing and, you know, different types of styles that I could kind of get into. And so I wasn't sure exactly the path that I was going to take with that. Um, I think I was a little bit too rebellious maybe for a strict classical career, but definitely something, you know, fairly creative in that space. But um, yeah, the ankle obviously happened. So I went to university, I went to TTS and just got really restless. And then by the end of it, I had an opportunity to study abroad at a partner university in New York. And I just thought, well, you know, let's do this. So I sort of saved up a lot of money and was able to, to come over to New York and yeah, just really, you know, study and, and live this sort of fabulous kind of New York life for six months. And I ended up getting an internship at Fox. And I didn't, you know, we're Aussies. We don't know what internships are. We do work experience and you get a job. Um, so everyone's talking about these internships and I thought, I want to do this. So I ended up, you know, going online and they called me and I'd had a bit of experience with web coding. And at that point, that was 2006. So the digital arena was just taking off. It was, everything was still very TV oriented. I never really had a desire to be on TV in that sense. I love to write. So it kind of was a, a perfect storm. And I ended up just sort of going and throwing myself into it and, and learning about, you know, that it was the 2006 primary elections in the US. So it was this sort of whole new world of, of politics. And I'd go out and do sort of social stories and I'd get to travel a little bit. And it was a really interesting experience. And at the end of it, uh, one of the bosses came up to me and he said, look, we're, we're trying to build our web presence. We need a young sort of tenacious reporter to go to Los Angeles. And, you know, we're going to sponsor you and we're going to figure it out. And I thought, oh, God, this is such an amazing opportunity. At that point, I was still straddling with my dancing studies. And I just, you know, it was a choice that I had to make. And I think it was pretty obvious at that point um, that this was just such a great opportunity to pass up. So I ended up, uh, yeah, going out to L.A. And L.A. being L.A., I sort of ended up being pushed kind of in that entertainment direction, which it definitely had its ups and downs. There was this wonderful part of it that you really got to go and see the creative side of things and you got to sit and spend, you know, I remember sitting and spending time with you know, Steven Soderbergh and all these sort of amazing filmmakers and, um, and musicians and I really loved music and that was another part that I considered was going into sort of music journalism but I think at that point it was a little bit of a dying art, but I, um, yeah, it was a real sort of baptism by fire. I knew nobody and was just kind of thrown in with the sharks. And this is the part that I probably find the hardest to reconcile because I know you had your segment called Holly on Hollywood and I even think I remember seeing this somewhere because <laughs> this was back in, um, I think, 2007 to 2013. 
But when I, and again, I'm only looking at you from afar. I know we've attempted to connect a couple of times, but I, I see you as someone who is quite raw, quite gritty. You love the pointy end of a stick. Uh, you seem quite rebellious as well. Like, I don't know if that's still a streak within you or if it's just the heavy metal and the ballet and the horses and the guns and the, and the motorbikes and the way that you hold yourself. But um, I'm curious as the intersection of how do you go from Holly on Hollywood to interviewing captured terrorists um, and, you know, military and intelligence leaders across a whole range of different, you know, areas of the Middle East during, you know, some of the, what would be considered some of the, the, the biggest conflicts of our time? Sure. So, and it was a gradual process, but, you know, throughout my, I guess, Hollywood tenure, I was also doing a lot of investigative reporting again you know, people, DC office would call me or the New York office and say, you know, we have something in Southern California. We need you to go to the Mexico border or we need you to go and look into this, this big, you know, big story and, and me being sort of young and, and tenacious. So I was able to kind of just go and, and often get to the bottom of some pretty big stories at the time involving some very big political figures in the United States. So I definitely sort of had my feet wet a little bit with that. And I think more than anything, I'd sort of proven myself to my bosses as someone who was capable of doing a range of things. And, and regardless of what the topic was, I think that I'd proven myself as someone just capable of being able to go after the story, um, you know, whether it was my genre or it wasn't. And so it, it was a process. And I think, you know, I was sort of straddling both worlds and I really got to a point where, I just, I couldn't do both anymore. I couldn't, I couldn't, uh, I couldn't go to Iraq and come back and then be at the Oscars and, and sort of feel that I was able to give both those things the best of me. So I pretty much, you know, you chose Iraq. Yeah, I chose Iraq. <laughs> and it wasn't that I, you know, didn't feel that I learned a lot from the Hollywood world because I really did. And it was just this dream job to have in your early 20s. But for me, that wasn't my dream forever. It was a dream job for a period of my life to kind of give me this in and this experience and to kind of learn interview techniques and other things. But uh, I know some people that just they go in and they just love it and they lap it up and they've been doing it for decades. And I think that's wonderful. But for me, that was just never something I could just never take it that seriously. And I think it was always a passionate person and I wanted to give everything I did the best of me. And I, I got to a point where, I, you know, I probably could have handled things a little bit better, but I just I wasn't giving it the best of me anymore. And I think that's, um, you know, where I really had to make a leap. And I'd already had my foot in it so um making that sort of full-time leap into that foreign space wasn't wasn't that um and what was the progression like because i can only imagine when you're because you're not just and again and i might even ask you to create the distinction for the people who are listening the difference between a, mm. a reporter and an investigative reporter because you know right. some people might be going well what's the difference um and i might get you to maybe dovetail a response on that sure. to going well okay you chose to go from hollywood where you'd be considered to be um, you know, someone who, and, and, and I hope this doesn't come across as stereotypical, but you know, you, you're, you're a part of the culture. You're a beautiful young girl. You know, you seem you would have been embraced by everyone from every side, but then you're making a conscious choice to not just be an, a reporter, but an investigative reporter in the Middle East, whereby for the most part, based on a lot of cultural and religious, um, 
and you know i guess you could say historical dynamics you know women for the most part they're not necessarily embraced at the level that you would normally play or you are or did i should say play at what was that progression like so firstly what's the mm-hmm. distinction and what was that progression like going from you know the i could i guess you could say the the the, the womb of hollywood to the reality of war zones where you know women weren't necessarily held in the highest esteem Sure. So for me as an investigative reporter, and people have different meanings to it, but for me that was, you know, it's also enterprise reporting or original reporting where you really, you're tasked with getting to the bottom of something. So, uh, you know, it might involve going through a ton of court documents, you're building up sources, you're going to, um, you know, door knocking on often very uncomfortable situations on people's houses. You're really trying to you know, I guess it's kind of detective work in some way. So you're really kind of doing that intel detective work, um, you know, obviously using open source material. And it's a really a relationships game too. So, um, for example, if you're working on a, you know, it's a, it's a murder investigation or something, you, you've got to make contacts with the, the homicide departments and the DA or the, the lawyers for the defendant or, you know, you really have to be able to put two and two together. And it's a lot of it is really just sort of jigsaw puzzle. Right. Um, and it's just, it's, it's a, often a long process. It's often a deep process and it's often something you can get so far in and then never quite put it all together. So it can also be extremely frustrating. Uh, just general sort of reporting tends to be a little bit, um, I guess maybe it's focused a little bit less on sort of the original aspect of it and you're more just kind of presenting or relaying what happened or, yeah. or just sort of doing a Q&A interview. So, and, and I, that's an important service too. It's just, it's very different. Um, so for me, I think th- it was really just a curiosity factor. I always just wanted to really deep, dive into something and and things always I always felt that things always seemed too simple on the surface and I always felt that there always had to be uh, something more to it and I think that's really what drew me drew me to the Middle East was this idea that were we getting all the information how is how is this all happening how are we putting two and two together and I it was really that curiosity I think that that drew me into that world and then once I kind of started doing it, um, it just becomes addictive. And, and I don't say addictive because I think it's a, it tends to be a little bit of a misnomer that these foreign reporters are addicted to adrenaline and all of that. And, and this certainly is, um, you know, adrenaline when you've survived a suicide bombing or, you know, something crazy has happened. But that wasn't, I think, what compelled me. And I think that's probably one of the most least interesting aspects of a war zone is what we call the bang bang. To me, it was just sort of these human stories and how just very ordinary people is thrust into these extraordinary situations and how you get through that. And I just, and still today, and it's a product I'm working on, is is trying to wrap my head around how these things happen and how people kind of come out the other side. And I think that is what has kept me going. That is what's helped me to forge very deep connections with people in in far-flung places is trying to really just relate to them and bring some of those stories back to to a US audience. And that is, that's just, if that's something you love, it's just not something that you can switch off from very easily. So I think it's fair to say there's, there's a, you know, we're, we're kind of in the new age of media um, and news. You know, we've got everything from mainstream news now to social media news to 
fake news. You know, there's now people talking about fake religion, fake science, and it's not just news that is kind of taking a beating. But you seem to be someone who's you know done a lot of research from an investigative perspective. You know, you've worked a lot on you know in some very volatile areas of you know the Middle East, Iraq, Afghanistan, Pakistan, Syria, Iran, Turkey. You know. Saudi Arabia and many others. You've also, you know, been exposed to other aspects and parts of the world. But I guess the Middle East is one that's been under the spotlight for quite some time. And I guess from my perspective, as someone who's genuinely curious, like, what did you learn that perhaps a lot of the mainstream news outlets don't share with us when it does come mm. to the conflict in the Middle East? Because oftentimes we're fed a narrative and sometimes that narrative is one is mm. economical or political. You know, I'm just curious from your perspective, like what, what did you learn that's different from what most people get told? I think that there is obviously a lot of different things. I think that there is a tendency in the mainstream media to really simplify things to um, follow a narrative and and I'll give you one example. So I've interviewed a lot of terrorists in in especially in Iraq and Syria and other places that joined ISIS and other groups. And what I found was that uh, you know we're sort of fed this idea that it's all about religion and extremism, and I think that is a factor, but it's certainly not the factor. So I think what was interesting to me was sort of understanding all the underlying dynamics that come into the reasons why people join these groups. And again, I, I never found religion to always be the motivating factor. And really what I found was often it was as simple as this group comes into your village and, you know, you're a poor farmer. Where are you going to go? You know, you still need to make your $50 a month. So if this group is going to pay you that, and you can stay in your farm and you have to pledge allegiance to this awful leader, you're going to do that. Mm -hmm. So I think that there's sort of this idea that everybody is being painted with a broad brush. And I, and I didn't find that to be, you know, super accurate. I also think something that it is ignored a lot, especially, you know, by DC and other Western governments is the role that states um, governments play. So the corruption that we see in, places like Afghanistan and Iraq and Syria by the, the leaders of these countries. Mm. Um, that is a huge driver. And, and, and you see people that if you have to pay $50 every time you go through a checkpoint, you're going to get pissed off after a while and you're going to want to fight that you know, policeman who's then giving that money to someone else in the government. Or you can't feed your family but everybody working there is driving around in a Rolls Royce. So mm. I think that, that, you know, we tend to ignore these problems that we see as systemic when really they're the root causes and terrorism is so often a symptom. But yet I think over the past 20 years we've, we've made terrorism look to be the root cause and you can see that that really hasn't, hasn't benefited any of us because we're still dealing with a lot of this, you know, nonsense now. So... I think until there's a real willingness from governments to really just go hard and get to the bottom of it, you know, these things aren't going to go away. And I'm going to assume being in the war zones that you have for the times that you've been there. And again, one of the things I've noticed about you is you're not someone who uh, bangs your own drum. Like you're very humble, you know, in the way that you present yourself and your own experiences. But I can only assume, and maybe you've alluded to one already, that you've been in some pretty hairy situations, you know, in the time that you've been reporting. 
um, which in itself, like, and, and again, I've seen the, some of the kids that you've worked with, so I might allude to a little bit of it here. And I can only assume that, you know, you've, you've been affected in a, in a range of different ways. But if we were to start at the beginning in terms of some of the situations that you have seen firsthand that most people perhaps wouldn't assume, you know, looking at you, you would have experienced, share with us, you know, some of those experiences. Right. You know, it's funny. It's interesting. As you said, it's, it was one thing I always, you know, was in these and I, and I never really posted about it or talked about it even, and not because I didn't want to share it, but because I always felt that I didn't want to, I felt, it felt wrong to me to make myself the story or in any way, you know, seem that I was in danger when the people that I'm working with and living with, they face that day in and day out and mm. they don't have the luxury of leaving. And I have the luxury to leave. So I've always, um, you know, I've always tended to sort of keep those things fairly much under lock and key. Um, you know, I, it's hard to know for me, you know, definitely multiple suicide bombings. And I found that a lot of those were, were Afghanistan, you know, tended to be a really hairy place. Um, you could literally be passing through a street and and 10 minutes later, it would be blown up. I know in one case uh, when I was there, I just, you know, just passed a place and then 180 people were killed a few minutes later because the tanker truck exploded. And, and uh, you know, so it's just it's a lot of it's sort of luck or timing or I would even say intuition. Mm. Um, so, you know, there's definitely those situations. But I've always... I learned to trust that gut feeling in some way. Yeah. I was going to say, I can only imagine there's been some sliding doors moments. Yeah, definitely. Definitely. And just sort of, I guess, simple things of, you know, I remember at one point really wanting to, you know, to travel to a place in Syria that, you know, journalists weren't allowed to go to and, and bugging everybody for weeks and saying, I want to go here, I want to go here. And Finally, a car sort of came and said, well, this car is going there and you should jump in and go. And I had everything ready to go. And I, I kind of got to the car and I thought, I'm not going. And I don't know why. And I sort of came back and was beating myself up and like, what are you doing? You know, you're, you're losing your mojo kind of thing. And that car was ambushed and, you know, none of those people were ever seen again. So, wow. yeah, to a, to a degree, you know, there is this kind of weird um a weird layer of protection, I would say. Mm, that's incredible. Um, and I don't think everyone's probably had that, that, that opportunity. I know myself, I don't know if you remember the, the, the 2003 bombings in Istanbul, mm. um, HSBC and the British consulate. I was actually um, yeah, a few hundred meters away from the British consulate when the bomb went off, actually making my way to a restaurant across the road from the British consulate. Right. And it was not for the fact where I had uh, left something back at my hostel that I had to go back. I would have been right out in front when um, when it was detonated. But just to be experienced, you know, and, and that's nothing that would even compare to the many things that you've seen. But I, I'm going to assume you've not only been in life-threatening situations, but you've also seen people who have been through, you know, not just life-threatening situations, but life-altering situations. You know, I remember reading about, you know, at one point, I remember reading a post from you about the barrel bombs that were being used in Syria and how they were, mm. you know, essentially leaving behind paths of destruction, you know, for families and, and kids as well. And I guess this is maybe a, a slightly different question, but I'll maybe make this one a two-parter as well. I can only assume you've seen a lot, you know, and I've seen that by the kids that you've worked with. But how do you, how have you learned how to process that? 
you know, because you are human after all, mm. you know, you, you do have a very gentle side that I think, you know, some people do get to see, even if it is on social media. Um, how do you process some of what you've been exposed to and been able to see yourself? Yeah, I think, you know, it's interesting. I think at first you kind of think that, you know, you're a little bit invincible and, and that you can be strong and you can compartmentalize everything. And for me, I always, you know, I tried to take that approach, but at the same time, I also felt that it was extremely important to me as a writer and as a, just as a human to never be so hardened that I kind of lost my ability to convey something or emote something or just keep balancing act of being able to do your job effectively, but at the same time, you know, be with the people and hold their hand and, and kind of walk through that process with them. And, you know, I think grief is, is not necessarily, um, you know, you're not necessarily going to see a dead baby and then the next, you know, five minutes later be, be a complete mess. You know, you may see be in that situation and then it might be five weeks later that you suddenly go, oh, my God, you know. So it's, it's not always um, a sort of a clear-cut process. What I think for me is writing definitely helps. Um, I think that, you know, being able to, uh, have be around supportive people and, and friends and, and people that you can sort of socialize with, but at the same time also have alone time as well because I, I I'm someone who who does need that kind of introverted time to to go through things in my head. Um, and also what I found with me too is that I it's often not the most obvious things that tend to really upset me. So, you know, there's parts in the book about digging up mass graves and things that are very horrific. And I think I'm able to kind of deal with those things fairly pragmatically and sort of know what I need to do to, to get through those moments and then know what I need to do to file the story and kind of process it. For me, it's more the sense of, you know, and I guess you can take this on the title, but what's left of the living people and the people that kind of, have to suffer through things and there are just these little moments that really break you and and for me I think that the best thing that I can do and uh, you know I'm not a doctor I'm not a lawyer I'm not you know I'm not able to to bring uh criminals to the to the ICC but what I am able to do is to write mm -hmm. and I hope that in some ways you know that gives a sense of justice to people who never see justice for what happened to them and so that's sort of the way that I look at, at what I do and um, I'm not there to save the world. I can't save the world and I can't carry that on my shoulders, but I can, I can play my small part in, uh, in conveying what's happening so that having a purpose definitely helps. So um, you're also now the author of a best-selling um, book, Only Cry for the Living, Mem Memos from Inside the ISIS Battlefield. Um, it's been picked up by a number of different people. Jocko Willink, you know, obviously picked it up as well, gave you a, a massive plug, which is not an easy task. Uh, he doesn't give out plugs um, easily by any stretch of the imagination. But what was the motivation behind the book and, and, and what's in the book or at least highlights mm. of the book that would maybe compel people to find out a little bit more about what's inside? So the really uh you know it was a labor of love I was going in and out of the region and, and spending a lot of time there and so uh, writing a lot of articles and things so 
everywhere I went, I was just taking notebooks. I'm kind of an old school journalist like that. I write everything down. I'm sort of taking notes as I'm interviewing. When I, you know, come back late at night before I go to sleep, I'm remembering what I saw and trying to convey those details in very illegible scroll. Um, so I kind of knew that I always wanted to do something more with that. that. That was a little bit beyond just the news articles, but I wasn't really quite sure what that was and it wasn't really taking a shape probably until about halfway through the ISIS trajectory. So the book the book goes from 2014 through to the end of 2018, which was to the bulk of the ISIS fight. And I wanted to, you know, I ended up sort of looking at all these notebooks and then deciding that the best way for me to tell the story was through memos. And they go chronologically uh, through that time period. And they're really from every different perspective that I could possibly muster. So the memos, you'll be hearing about the conflict from the Yazidis who have had genocide committed against them, from the women who've been held as sex slaves right through to the terrorists, uh, through to the US Army. I spent some time with the Australians as well, um, the Syrian Democratic Forces, which are the Syrian-backed rebels. Um, so all different uh, walks of life. And that's sort of what I wanted to do. So it's it's not a political book. It's not, you know, leaning one way or another. And it's not a policy book because I think there are plenty of people who write policy books and that was never what my objective was. My objective was to be able to sort of convey something in a way that hopefully gives people a much deeper understanding of the region, the dynamics and how people really live their lives and what they think. And that's what I wanted to, to bring home. And what's some of the deeper stuff? Because it, it seems to me there's a lot in this book. Um, we're kind of playing a little bit on the surface here, but what are some of the deeper insights that the book reveals that perhaps, you know, people may not be aware of, um, you know, for what was going on there? Yeah, and multiple of uh, the memos will really walk people through uh, the experiences, you know, and, and some of it's a, a t- tougher read. Some memos are tougher reads than others, but some of it's going to, to really walk you through what some of the, the young women endured as sex slaves in right yeah. from the beginning process of, of how they were taken, you know, what happened when, when ISIS came into Sinjar Mountain and, and took them and what they were told and where they were taken and how they were treated. And, and it really does go into that sort of very um, behind-the-scenes detail of what happened. The same thing with uh, young boys who were taken and, and brainwashed to be child soldiers and what they were taught and told and, and how they were made to kind of live their lives for this period, how they escaped you know, what life was like when they came back and, and how little they really had to come back to. And so I really wanted to kind of go behind the scenes and go into detail. Similarly with the terrorists, um, you know, what, how they joined the group, why they joined the group, what their role with the group was, how much they were paid, where they lived, where they stayed, how they tried to get in, how they got out, how they were captured, their life in jail, what was going to be next for them. Um, so I really... I think use the experience that I had, and this is where we dig a little bit deeper than a news mm. story, is that detail and that, you know, what a what an 800-word article can't do for you is what I wanted the book to be able to do because I think it's those seemingly small points that can paint that really big picture and give us that understanding that we need to process the region and, and kind of hopefully avoid these things happening again. You've you've clearly had a unique um, view, bird's eye view, I guess you could say, of so many different matters that most people probably hear 
you know, at a very surface or filtered level. How has this, how has this experience affected you as a person? And again, mm -hmm. I, I guess this is a little bit more about self-reflection. And I, I know you can be, well, I, I perceive you as someone who's quite, got quite a strong exterior. You know, you don't, you don't give too much away. But I am curious if there's been enough reflection for you to look back on your experience and go, how has this affected me and in what ways has it? You know, and I don't mean this in a, you know, a necessarily a good or bad. I'm going to assume there's been aspects of both. But I'm just curious from your own self-reflection what you've identified as how this experience has changed you. Absolutely. I think for me the biggest downside probably uh, that I've experienced is, you know, and it's something I still work with, and that is sort of, a, I guess, a heightened sense of paranoia. And that wasn't necessarily in the war zones themselves, but I would come back to, to New York or wherever it is that I was living at the time and just, and it's something I still grapple with, uh, even though I'm sort of in the country now, but it's this idea of, of what do people want from you? Who's coming after you? Um, you know, you get a spam email on your on your phone and, and suddenly it's like, well, who was hacking into my phone and what do they want from me? And so I, I think that was the biggest personal remedy ramification for me and that's sort of how my trauma so to speak manifested itself it was in this sort of idea of, of everybody kind of coming after you and and I struggled with being able to sort of trust people and and what people's agendas were I think is mm. probably the biggest thing and just I guess it's a sense of unknown you have this pervasive sense of who is looking at me who is spying on me who is you know what do people want from me and I think that that just comes from, I guess, living in, in places and, you know, often somewhere like Syria, you're, you know, you're not going in with a visa. You're going, you know, I was going across the boat or you're going across the Euphrates on a little boat to, to get in. So um, it was sort of this, always this heightened sense of, you know, what do people want from me? And I think I was fine when I was kind of on the ground and working, but coming back, I think that's sort of when you tend to, to fall apart a little bit and, and things that should be looked at in a fairly level-headed, I would become a little bit irrational with. And so that's something I've had to work through as the biggest downside. But really, I mean, I can't imagine who I would be if I hadn't done this work yeah. because the just, you know, I feel like I've learned so much. I feel like the people that I just meet on the ground, the, the refugees, the displaced people, the survivors, they just, they teach you things that no book or no movie or no school can ever sort of teach you about life and, and, and uh, you know, appreciation and, and just culture and love. And I just think that they've taught me, you know, and helped me probably more than I could ever help them. And I just, I don't know, I can't think of anything more fulfilling than that. Do you ever, did you ever at ever point during this journey? Cause you know, it seems to me, it's almost like you're describing aspects of what, I've even heard veteran soldiers explain when they get back, like when they're on the ground there, everything seems to be fine, but it's not until they get back that um, they start experiencing things that they've never experienced before. How did you not lose yourself in this process? Because to me, this process wasn't just you went over there and came back. You were there, you were back, you were there, you were back. And, you know, as I sit here and I listen to you now, and this is the first time we've had, the you know, an opportunity to connect properly since I've known you, which is probably, you know, I've been following from afar for at least five or six years. One of the things I've often noticed with you from afar out of my curiosity is you don't seem to have lost your sense of self. 
And maybe I'm wrong. Maybe I'm just, you know, a, a passive observer who only gets to see less than 1% of who Holly really is. But even as I speak to you right now, like one of the things that I hear when I often speak to Australians that have gone over to the US either as actors or journalists or even as entrepreneurs, they often end up, you know, even losing their own accent. But you seem like you've really maintained a strong sense of self and who you are. And I, I guess it's a two-parter, you know, number one, how did you not lose your sense of self? And, you know, number two, how did you maintain this sense of Holly, you know, when you were, had so many, you know, political, um, cultural and religious influences around you that in most cases would make people question a lot? Right. I think, you know, going back right to the beginning, I think, you know, ironically enough, working in that Hollywood world is really yeah, right. kind of what grounded me because I just, I looked at it and thought, God, this is a circus, you know, and <laughs> I'm on the outs. I, I never felt part of it. I never felt yeah. part of that group. You know, I might have been able to go to the awards and go to the parties and do these things, but I never really felt that I belonged there. Um, I was always sort of on the outside looking in in some ways. Um, so I think that I just sort of looked at it and thought it was all a bit ridiculous, but, you know, and I say that with affection. Um, so I think that almost so had the opposite effect to me. Did, than you being feel more, did you feel more at home in a war zone in Iraq than you did on the oh, carpet at Oscars? Completely, completely. I, I can't, yeah, I never felt, oh God, I remember going to the Oscars, you know, and I went probably eight or nine times at least now thinking about it. But, um, but yeah, I don't, I don't think there was one experience that I actually really enjoyed. And, and I look back and I regret that a little bit because I think yeah. that, you know, when you're 21 and you have this amazing experience and you, you know, I just, I think that I, there's so much of me that didn't want to be there or just didn't understand it or just didn't kind of get it um, and the hype around it. So I think that, you know, I, I wish that I'd appreciate it a little bit more and I can appreciate it looking back, but, you know, I would sort of nick off and go to In-N-Out Burger across the street <laughs> and, you know, just in, in you know, I'd, I'd buy the, literally go to the Goodwill, which is like the salvos and just find a dress and be like, I I'm remember seeing this, that you know? as your post. You're like, yeah. I remember seeing one post. You're like, I think yeah. this dress cost me $16 at Goodwill. And here I am yeah. rocking up on the red carpet else. Cause yeah. I was like, Oh my God, I love this. It was probably my rebellious streak a little bit too in just trying to kind of, you know, uh, stick it to the man a little bit. But um, So I'm, I'm yeah, curious so, though, and I yeah. want to go backwards perhaps a little bit here, and I hope you don't mind, but what is it about you and your life and your upbringing that made you feel at home in the middle of a fucking war zone? Because I can relate to that, but I'm curious as to how you do. Yeah, I think that... You know, I always related to I always related to people that have been through really tough situations, and I always felt sort of, I guess, a degree of kinship to 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 these women that were really had nothing much more than I ever felt to people that you know had extreme wealth or extreme fame or extreme privilege. And yeah, it probably goes back to just sort of my upbringing, and it was a very you know simple upbringing. Both my parents. You know, my mom grew up in a, you know, a shed in a cane farm um, and, and she lost her parents very young. And then my father, who came from a big family, you know, his, he never knew his dad. His dad was a World War II veteran who ended up dying of alcohol poisoning or who's, you know, drinking metho very young, you know, with the trauma. So my nana, you know, would ride her pub, ride to the pub every night as a cook. So, you know, neither of my, my parents came from very much and they really worked hard to give my sister and I, I know, 
a much better sort of upbringing than they had. So I think just very humble kind of roots in that sense, mm. uh, you know, with, with a family life and, you know, never taking yourself that ser- seriously. I also think ballet humbles you in a, in a different kind of way because it's such hard work for such really little is. reward, yeah. you know, the, the discipline you have to put into it and the sort of the stamina and the injuries and the, you know, everything that comes from ballet um, you know, and I still marvel at it because it's sort of this incredible art that even the top echelon, the top performers, you know, are lucky to take home a few hundred bucks a week compared to actors or, you know, other people that can, you know, make thousands and hundreds of thousands of dollars a day. And so um, ballet in itself is just kind of this very humble sort of discipline. So I think I never really approached the work that I did, you know, with this sense of needing to be needing to be the best or needing to make the most money or or any of that. But I, I approached it with the sense of wanting to to just be the best of it that I could. And I think that um, you know that's always served me. I was never concerned with awards or, or you know money or titles or you know anything like that. It was really just being to sit with the people, and there was just something so raw and extraordinary about the people and survivors that I'd met. And I think that's it, to a degree what we're all craving in life is that authenticity, and mm. it's just something I feel like we don't have a lot of anymore, especially with the invent of social media. So when you are in this environment with people who want nothing from you, and I think that's another big factor too. I always felt, um, you know, uh, you know, as a journalist in in LA or New York, that there is a degree of where our relationships are very transactional, and that's the way the world works, regardless of whether it is the entertainment industry or not. But the entertainment industry, particularly, it's so transactional. There's, mm. there's the PR person who wants something from you. There's the, you know, the talent that wants something from you. There's the publication, there's the studio, there's this, there's that. Everybody sort of wants something from you. Um, and because I was working for Fox, it's a big outlet. So you sort of had this kind of sense of just everybody had an agenda and, and it was hard to find that authenticity. And so I think when I went to these places and, and, talk to these people who really were just there to, to tell a story and, and there was nothing that they wanted from you necessarily or, you know, nothing you could really give them. And I think that was, you know, it was just, it was, it was something I, I, I needed in my life mm. to sort of forge those bonds. It's so interesting because, you know, if anyone was stereotypical about, you know, young women, they would have thought that you would have gone to Hollywood and got chewed up and spat out. But it's almost like you chewed up and spat Hollywood out um, and, you know, exchanged that for uh, the Middle East, which, you know, you certainly digested incredibly well. But I'm, I'm curious, like you've done so much, you know, in your life so far. And it seems like, and again, I'm I'm on the outer. I'm looking in um, with a level of curiosity. But what's next for Holly? Like, because I see someone who's got mm-hmm. so much heart and so much compassion and so much love for others. But I sometimes wonder, like, has your experience affected you to the degree where you just want to be of service to others, or is there something that you want to do for yourself? Like, what's next for you? I think for me, you know, and I took a big leap earlier this year and, you know, left uh, left my job that I'd, I'd been at since I was 20. So I'd been there for a long time. Um, the grind was wearing on me a little bit. And, you know, I was in New York. It's obviously it's an expensive city. Um, sort of new management had come in and, and the travel was, 
you know, maybe not as frequent. I'm fine when I'm traveling, but sort of being in the, the fold of that, that's sort of the corporate fold and, um, you know, having to go to the, 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 big, the big studio every day and, you know, that she intends to wear off. And that's not really my thing. Sitting at a desk, you know, window, no windows, um, you know, having to be on the clock all the time, having different editors constantly breathing down your neck and, and the workload just sort of piling up. Um, I just should realize that that wasn't where I saw myself and I didn't, I felt that there was no longer growth for me there. So, you know, I, I put my steps in place, but I, I left and now I'm able to, and it's scary. It's scary going out on your own when you've so, you've been so used to kind of, and that was another thing too. I felt that everywhere I went, I was being introduced as Holly from Fox. And it just, it bothered me because mm. I was Holly, you know, and what yeah. I did for a living as much as my job is a lifestyle, it's not a job you can just kind of go into and then go home. Um, but I felt that there was, you know, there was a different path for me. Um, and I felt this sort of creative, the creative part of me that I really sort of nurtured when I was a teenager and when I was younger, that was the part of me that I felt was really missing in my life. So um, so now I've been able to kind of live a bit of a quieter life. I'm in South Carolina with some, you know, my, my childhood best friend from, from Australia. And I'm really focusing on the writing aspect. I'm still doing, you know, freelance, more niche stuff now. So instead of kind of the big day-to-day grind, I'm, I'm focused more on sort of being able to do feature stories on um, just things that are important to me. I wrote an Anzac story and I'm um, actually, it's funny, I'm doing an Australian bush survival sort of story for a sort of a military survival magazine here. So I'm kind of exploring the genres that are still within my realm um, and I'm working on a project with survivors of war and really just taking time to talk to people from every facet of the planet about their story and, and how they grew up and how they really survived the worst things that humans can do to each other because I see so much, you know, there's so many amazing survival books out there and there's so much, you know, people that are doing these crazy ultra marathons and, you know, all respect to them. But what I think the voice that I can bring to the table is just, what about the people that have no choice but just to be in the situation and how do they get through and what can we learn about resilience from them? And so that's sort of a project I'm working on uh, with that. And then using some of the knowledge I have as well about authoritarian regimes and other things and, and working on a little bit of fiction stuff, which is uh, new for me. And it's really, really hard. <laughs> my goodness. <laughs> You're like, used to the real world. It's, I thought uh, interviewing I... terrorists was hard, but oh my goodness, like using the knowledge you have and then sort of putting it into a kind of a non-real sense. It seems like it's going to be easier from the outset, but I have to tell you, it's really, really damn hard. <laughs> Has your experience made you cynical or optimistic? You know, I think it vacillates depending on how I feel that day. Um, but it's broad. I think that wars and, and conflicts are going to exist. Um, you know, there's nothing we can do to ever make them go away. But I think I'm very focused from a policy point of view on prevention and what more we can do to stop these things happening before they, they sort of crop up. And I think that's really one area of policy where I'm kind of working on and trying to to do a lot more of. So inherently in that sense, I would like to say that I'm optimistic. Um, I think there was definitely, you know, for a period of time where I did feel very cynical, I sort of felt that things were hopeless, but 
with a little bit of distance, I think that I can see things in a, you know, in a different way. And again, it goes back to this idea of just how resilient the human spirit is and how the people that I've met have just overcome the most unfathomable things. And I think, well, if they can do that, you know, to a degree, we can all do that. Mm. Um, and so I think that, you know, that has given me a certain sense of optimism that I didn't have previously. I only cry for the living memos from inside the ISIS battlefield. Where can people get their hands on the book? Where can people find out more about you? I know you're not what would be considered a, uh, a social media purveyor, but you are on social, but uh, yes. where can people find the book? Where can people find you? So Amazon, you can find it also in Aussie. Uh, Aussies can get it off Jocko's website, which is getsome.com.au uh, and get that shipped directly there. Otherwise, Amazon is great. Um, and I you can also come and talk to me on usually. Instagram is usually the best best way to kind of reach out to me. I, I try to go through that spam inbox as frequently as I can. So that is Holly, H-O-L-L-I-E-S McKay is my handle and trying to be a little bit more active and kind of share some of the experiences and things I'm reading and, um, you know, other things. And I really love to engage with people and, and get their feedback and thoughts and questions and, and things like that as well. So don't be afraid to send me a message. You really are a bit of an introvert, aren't you? Yeah. I'm like one of those introverts actually, you know, it's funny when Andy I was Bert? younger, I, yeah. When I was younger, I think I was a lot more of an extrovert. Um, and then as soon as I got older, I think again, I don't know, being in LA or something sort of brought me back to a, a little bit more of needing a, a quieter space. And I, again, I think as a writer, as you, you tend to kind of go off into your own world a little bit. And so I really value that alone time. Mm. Holly, thank you. Thank you not just for your time today. Thank you for the work that you've done on your book. Uh, thank you for the work that you've done, um, you know, especially with the work that you've done in Iraq, Afghanistan, Pakistan, Syria, Iran, Turkey. You know, you really have set a standard and a benchmark of what is possible with the human spirit, not just in terms of what you've seen overcome, but also in what you've done yourself. But I also want to thank you from me because um, – as strange as this might sound, I've really enjoyed following you for the last five or six years. I really enjoy seeing mm -hmm. your posts coming up. You always add a sense of reality um, and in some cases humility, you know, to, to situations and circumstances. And, um, yeah, I just want you to know I'm a, I'm, I'm a fan. I'm a champion. And if there's any, ever anything we can do to support you over here, please don't hesitate to let us know. Oh, thank you. I appreciate it. And I have to get to Byron. It's been a you long do. time and I've been, I've been talking about it, thinking about it, and I definitely want to have a back-to-back -back summer this year. So I'm hoping <laughs> to get back to, to Oz and Byron will be up, right up there on the list. Oh, I would Although love it's to very have popular now. It's oh, fuck. Popular. It's just Everyone's not the same anymore. It's just not the same. <laughs> but uh, we'll have to catch up at some point. Ladies and gentlemen, Holly McKay, and you've been listening to Unstoppable. Thank you, Holly. Thank you so much. This episode is brought to you by Nail It and Scale It, the world's leading fast growth program for businesses. If you have ever wanted to grow your business faster than what you can right now, if you need to make more revenue, if you need more leads, if you need more clients, if you need to know how to plan your business in a strategic way in order to hit big goals, if you need to learn how to scale your business and grow your team and your business so that you have more freedom, then this program is for you. Imagine three days immersed with me where we cover all aspects of business, but we do it from an immersive but also an execution standpoint. We execute 
every step of the way. And we're looking at five key areas. We're looking at your psychology. We're looking at your marketing, your sales, your leadership, and we're looking at your planning and how we integrate these five key areas to grow your business and your brand quickly. So if you'd like to find out more information, KerwinRay.com.